This presentation is on thermal injuries. To briefly review the skin pathology for burns, we have to remember there are three specific layers that we're evaluating with burns, and that's the epidermal, dermal, and subcutaneous tissue, as well as deeper tissues with more full thickness types of burns. There's also the zones of local injury, and you'll notice in your text they have the zone of coagulation, which is at the site of the injury. This involves the cells with maximum contact to the heat source. Your zone of stasis is the area extending peripherally from that site of injury. And here you're gonna to start to see a decrease in blood supply that are at high risk for wound progression without adequate fluid resuscitation. And then your last zone is the zone of hyperuremia. And this is the furthest from the injury itself. And these, these areas sustain minimal injury um, and inflammation and spontaneously heal, usually within about a week or so. When we look at categorizing our burns, there are different methods. Um, in your textbook on table 3821, there's the London Browder chart, which gives you um, by age, the percentage of burns by body part. Um, most of us from nursing school remember the rule of nines. And here we have uh, an adult sized patient or like an adolescent sized patient and an infant. And here it actually shows the surface area for those age groups. And we can um, provide a subjective measurement of the area of body surface area that's burned. There are also different categories of burns themselves. You have your superficial burn, partial thickness, and full thickness. Your superficial burn involves the epidermal layer, um, often referred to as a simple sunburn. It usually is identified as erythema, painful. Um, there's typically no blisters, and they often heal usually relatively quickly. Most of the time, they're fully healed within a week. Your partial thickness burns extend into the dermal layer. So when we go back to that first slide where I showed you the, the graph, it goes into the dermal layer. Most frequently is what brought the patient to the hospital is the, is the, the, the type of burn. And when we look at mechanisms of injury, usually these are scald burns, contact burns. Um, oftentimes we'll see these with children that are being maltreated. You can have your, your degloving, your stocking type of um, scalding burns. Your full thickness burns penetrate beyond the dermal layer. Now they're this can move as deep as the bone or, or just to the subcutaneous tissue. You will have an absence of capillary refill. Um, your mechanism in, of injury for these type of burns include um, long contact with a hot surface, flame injuries, immersion injuries, um, high voltage electrical burns. Um, these are typically what you'll see for full thickness. When we look at our plan of care to evaluate these patients, um, typically for burns that are less than 15%, um, there's usually just um, localized dressing changes, they often don't need to be hospitalized. But children with larger than 15% body surface area burns are going to require hospitalization. And we're going to want to do some lab work initially to get a baseline. Particularly, we're going to want to look at their BMP to see what their renal function is like, as well as what their electrolytes currently are at the time of injury. 
We also want to get a baseline pre-albumin, and that's going to let us know what their nutritional status is prior to treating them. Because burns have this hypermetabolic phase initially, and you're going to want to promote the best wound healing for the skin, you're going to want to make sure that we're optimizing their nutrition and keeping them in a, in a positive nitrogen balance. So pre-albumin is very important initially. You're going to want to pro most likely get a gas. You're definitely going to want to get a gas for anyone that has an inhalation injury because you want to know um, if there's any effect to the airway itself or the ability to exchange gas. You're going to want to get a carboxyhemoglobin level as well to see if there's any injury um, on, uh, from like carbon monoxide poisoning and things like that. Uh, your analysis, you're going to want to see, specifically, you're going to want to know what the UA looks like to see what your, your, your renal function, a little bit of how the kidneys are working, uh, but more so to collect the urine myoglobin because of the more extensive injuries, if they involve more of the muscle, you can have a release of myoglobin into the tissue and you, then there's a significant concern for rhabdomyolysis. So you'll, you'll want to, to get that initial baseline and then probably monitor that frequently to and again, it depends on the, extens the extensiveness of the burns and the location of the burns. If you have anyone with an electrical burn, you definitely want to get an EKG to make sure there's no electro electrical abnormalities after the burn. And then, of course, your CKMB you can use for muscle damage, as well as if you're evaluating someone from rhabdomyolysis. As far as the plan of care itself, you're going to want to address their nutritional status initially, and you're going to want to make sure that we provide them um, adequate nutrition. So you're going to want to give them um, early on fluid resuscitation, which we'll talk about with the Parkland formula, but you'll also want to make sure that you have um, uh, some for younger children, you want to make sure you're going to add dextrose to their, to their IV fluids. But again, you want to make sure you address their nutritional status early on. You'll also see that we offer patients oxandrolone and propanolol. Oxandrolone is a, is a metabol is an anabolic steroid. And what it does is it helps promote the retention of uh, muscle tissue as well as promotes muscle building. Um, and we give that in combination with propanolol. And as a beta blocker, you're going to help reduce their heart rate and therefore trying to um, reduce this hypermetabolic state that they're going to be in initially after the burn. So to try to promote as much muscle retention and tissue retention as possible. And then with our fluid resuscitation, like I said, we'll talk about the Parkland formula. You want to evaluate their circular story, circulatory status frequently, um, and specifically anyone that has a circumferential burn, because you're going to be concerned with compartment syndrome. And that's either anyone that has, you know, and that's, that could be a limb, it could be the trunk or torso. You're going to want to make sure that you're adequately measuring them, because as the tissue starts to heal, you're going to get this hardening of this tissue or this SCAR. And that can actually create a vice around a limb. And you may have to do, or you may have to notify the pediatric surgical team to provide escarotomies um, to help relieve that compartment syndrome. Of course, we're going to want to make sure we offer adequate pain control. And you have to look at this early on uh, because these, depending on the severity of the injury and the severity of the dressing changes, you're going you're gonna to have to have a plan on how you're going to go about controlling their pain. In our institution here at UF, what we do is we um, oftentimes will admit these children to the floor. If the floor team can provide an anxiolytic and maybe a low level or very 
mild analgesic on the floor, then they'll continue doing dressing changes on the floor. But oftentimes what we'll do is specifically in the early part of the injury is we will send that patient to the ICU for our sedation team to provide them conscious sedation or moderate sedation or even sometimes deep sedation so that we can get in there and get good burn dressings done, but also offering good, adequate pain control. Now, these burn dressings can vary in, in, in their presentation. Again, this all depends on the location of the burn, the body surface area burned. We'll oftentimes, um, as part of the surgical team that's caring for this patient, they may need to go in and do grafts. And depending on the location and the size of the body surface area, they can offer uh, xenografts or some type of animal skin to kind of cover it. Many times we like to use autographs where we're actually taking the patient's own skin and uh, applying it directly into the wound to allow for good granulation of that tissue to promote wound healing. We will uh, use different solutions to clean them. Oftentimes, I think we use a lot of uh, Dakin solutions, which help, help keep the area clean. And then if we need to, we can use uh, antibiotics that will help promote um, healing. And oftentimes, we'll use topical antibiotics. And then we can we'll often want to do wound debridement on a, on a pretty consistent basis. And again, that's assessed by the surgical team. Sometimes I'll have to take them to the, sur to the surgical OR suite and do uh, a deep wound debridement. Many times we can do some of that wound debridement during the dressing change um, by, you know, again, aggressively scrubbing the tissue, depending on what type of um, solutions that we're using, or if we have topical creams that can do or that can help promote debridement, we'll use that as well. And then, of course, the extension of, of the injury is going to determine, you know, how many skin grafts the child will need, what type of skin grafts they will need, and things like that. On the screen here, I've, I've put together your Parkland formula, but also in your textbook, they have tons of pictures of the different burns that I've talked about, as well as an example of the Parkland formula. But the Parkland formula is very simple. You're basically going to identify what the patient's weight is in kilos. You're going to multiply that by four mLs. And then you'll multiply that again by the total body surf surface area that's burned. That will give you the volume of lactated ringers that you need to fluid resuscitate with in the first 24 hours. We will take that total volume and divide it uh, in half and give that over the first eight hours. And then the second half of that volume, we're going to give over the following 16 hours to cover the full 24 hour period. You want to make sure you are diligent in finding out how much volume was given at the outside facility, and you're going to subtract that from that 24-hour volume as well. So when you get the patient in your emergency room or in your ICU, some of the questions you're going to ask the transport team is, how much fluid have they gotten in the field? How much fluid have they gotten at the outside facility? And then you'll document that total number and subtract that from your 24-hour total that you got on the first line. And then you will administer that, half of that over the first eight hours, the other half over the next 16 hours. With children that are under um, 30 kilograms, um, you want to give them in their maintenance fluid, you want to add some dextrose because you, again, you want to make sure that they don't become hypoglycemic and that you're um, promoting um, um, them to be in, a, uh, you're preventing a catabolic um, state. Your urine output, you're going to want to measure closely as well because you want to make sure anyone that's under 30 kilos that they're peeing at least 0.5 to 1 mL per kilo per hour. And if they're greater than 30 kilos, you want to make sure it's about 1 to 2 mLs per kilo per hour. 
And your urine output is going to be a huge indicator to, to make sure that you're assessing not only the volume, but you're also going to be looking at the color. If the urine, if the urine starts to become very dark in color, you want to make sure that you do that full workup for rhabdomyolysis because that is a huge concern and you want to make sure you protect those kidneys. You may also have to alkalinize the urine as well. Moving on to hyperthermia, uh, we have three different types of injuries that we're concerned with. We have our heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. Your heat cramps are going to basically be muscle cramps that are induced uh, by activities during very warm um, temperatures. Um, usually these are in outside activities. Oftentimes we see heat cramps in athletes that are, that are participating in sports outside when it's very warm outside. Heat exhaustion is essentially fatigue, weakness. Um, patients can have nausea, vomiting, increased thirst, dehydration, headache. It can also include muscle cramps and dizziness, orthostatic uh, blood pressures, tachycardia, tachypnea, and sweating. And that's the key, real, uh, sometimes the big key difference between heat exhaustion and heat stroke. During heat exhaustion, the patient is still perspiring and they're still um, sweating. Now with heat stroke, this is much more severe. Now your patient's temperature has become very elevated. Sometimes it can be as high as 41 degrees Celsius. So these patients will present with uh, seizures, delirium, coma, hallucinations sometimes, as well as severe headache. Uh, ataxia with cerebellar dysfunction. So this is much more severe um, type of um, heat injury. And then when we look at our hyperthermia injuries, when we're treating these patients, we want to look at ways we can cool them down. So when we look at cooling patients down, we can cool them by conduction, convection, radiation, or evaporation. Conduction is when you have direct contact with a cool um, surface. So oftentimes conduction can be done when you put someone in a cool pool or you douse them with cool water. Convection is when you will actually uh, blow cold air over someone. So if you sat someone in front of a fan or an air conditioner, um, that would help um, dissipate some of the heat from there. Uh, radiation is just allowing the person to allow the heat to escape from their, from their body. And evaporation occurs uh, Usually that's, that, that's, that's described when someone is perspiring and they're losing the heat from, their, uh, from that method. For our plan of care for our hypothermia injuries, you're going to, for heat cramps, we'll get a baseline set of electrolytes and we'll replace fluid losses. This can be done orally or through IV fluid. For heat exhaustion, we're going to want to get some baseline labs, such as a BMP, CBC, and we're going to want to provide some form of passive cooling. And I, I always remember this because when I was in the service, I worked with the Marines in uh, North Carolina, as well as in Virginia. During hot summers, we would have these pools, like these little baby pools, stations um, spaced out at various intervals during our, our running activities. And if someone got too hot or if they started showing signs of heat exhaustion, we would take the Marine and dunk them in the pool of water to kind of cool them off rapidly. And it was usually this was very cool, very cool to cold water. Um, so you're going to want to but definitely kind of cool them down. You can do that with ice packs. You can do that with um, cooling blankets. If you have the ability to, to douse them with water to cool them down, you can do that as well. Um, and again, these patients have been perspiring for some time. You're going to want to definitely give them some IV fluids to help resuscitate them back. For heat stroke, um, this, this is definitely more of a 
emergent type of uh, situations or could be even an emergency depending on how severe the patient is. So you're going to want to be able to protect their airway. So you're going to assess their ABCs. And again, you're going to assess and treat their airway, their breathing, and their circulation. So if they need to be intubated or provided with oxygen or put on some form of um, an airway adjunct, you're going to do that first. Then you're going to want to look at their core temperature. And you, again, you want a core temperature. You don't want to mess around with an axillary temperature. You're going to want to get uh, a rectal temperature or some form of a core temperature. And if it's relatively high, you're going to want to decrease their core temperature by about 0.2 degrees every minute um, to try to cool them down quickly, but not super rapidly. And then you're going to want to assess their um, their labs, because now that you have this, this very high temperature, you're at high risk for muscle injury. Again, rhabdomyolysis is a concern. You're also concerned about DIC. So you're going to want to get some coags and you may not only get a baseline set, but you're also probably going to want to monitor them serially to make sure um, that you're on top of your treatment. Again, you're going to want to assess their electrolytes. I didn't put it on this slide, but I probably would also get a CBC to make sure that we're okay with our cell lines as well. You can use antipyretics, um, but again, you're going to want to cool this patient down. You can cool, you can give them cool IV fluids. You can do cool peritoneal lavages. Um, you basically want to cool them down in any method you can, ice packs, things like that, but you don't want them to shiver. You want to prevent them from shivering. Shivering is your body's response to uh, being cold and that's how it tries to generate heat. So someone that's already this warm, you don't want them generating any more heat. So you'll want to prevent sh shivering at all, at all costs. You want to make sure their urine output is good. Here, the book recommends one to, to three mLs per kilo per hour. So that fluid resuscitation, and you may find as you start giving them fluid boluses, you may have to give them several liters, um, depending on the, the age and the size of the child, before you start getting urine output. So you definitely want to make sure you're on top of that and monitoring that very closely. And of course, you're monitoring their blood pressure as well to make sure they're not hypotensive. And then if there are concerns for rhabdomyolysis, again, you might want to alkalinize the urine. And then in severe cases, especially if there's a significant amount of rhabdo that you're, that you're working with or the severity of the rhabdomyolysis, you may need to involve um, dialysis. Lastly, I'll talk briefly a little bit about hypothermia injuries. And you might be thinking, Dr. Mamie, why are you talking about hypothermia injuries when we live in a very warm climate? But you could still see hypothermia here in Florida. I remember taking care of a kid who uh, fell into a community uh, lake. And uh, it was not super cold out, but it was enough to drop his core temperature uh, to about 31 to 32 degrees Celsius. And um, it actually preserved him because he was a, a, a non-fatal drowning. And because he was so cold and he was down in the water for a while, his mammalian reflex, I believe, kicked in and it, was allow it allowed us to resuscitate him and he actually survived with minimal deficit. So again, we can still have uh, hypothermial type of injuries here in Florida. You're probably not going to see frostbite. You're probably not going to see severe hypothermia, um, but you may see some of the mild to moderate types of um, hypothermia. Your textbook classifies mild as a uh, core temperature of 34 to 36 degrees Celsius moderate as 32 to 34 degrees Celsius, and severe as less than 32 degrees Celsius. On their presentation, you may have changes in their mental status. You could see seizures and coma. Um, you can have tachycardia, um, 
Typically, you know, you'll start to see tachycardia first, and then as they become colder, you'll start to see a bradycardia, and then that will convert into asystole. So you have to be uh, very careful when you assess these patients, and you're going to want to resuscitate them appropriately. You can have constipation. Probably constipation isn't going to be high on your problem list when they first come in, but it may be something that you'll have to deal with once the patient uh, is admitted and you're treating them. And then, of course, they can also have a decrease in urine output. Again, your plan of care is going to involve your airway, um, airway assessment. You'll want to get a blood gas. You'll do uh, an EKG. You're going to want to send off for coags, especially smaller children. You know, infants, if they develop uh, hypothermia, they're at high risk for coagulopathy. So you want to assess their, their synthetic function early on, sending a CBC and also some electrolytes and liver function. Uh, amylase and lipase and any type of x-rays, depending on where the injury is or what type of injuries you're dealing with. You're going to want to remove any wet clothing. So if this is a submergent type injury, you're going to want to remove all the wet clothing and rewarm them. And you can rewarm them in very different um, acids. So if you intubate this child, you can put them on humidified oxygen. And they, most every ventilator I've ever worked with has a, uh, a heater on it to help warm the air to make it comfortable so you can uh, control how much heat is provided through the ventilator. You can give them warmed IV fluids. If you have to give them blood, you can give them warmed blood using a blood warmer. You can do a peritoneal lavage. Um, you can also do, you can also in severe cases, place the patient on ECMO. And oftentimes every ECMO circuit I've worked, it also had um, some type of heat exchange on it as well to help um, keep the blood the same temperature as the body. So you can control the patient's body temperature with and after drop is essentially where the body temperature continues to fall during the rewarming process. So you're definitely going to want to um, just, you know, again, pay close attention to their, their core temperature throughout the process and know that this can happen. And you're going to want to continue your, um, your warming uh, initiatives to, to warm them up. Frostbite, again, you're probably not going to see this very much in this region, but you probably could depending on where the patient is or depending on where you... Frostbite is a dermal injury that's sustained during hypothermic conditions, um, and you can have severe loss or significant loss of digits or limbs, depending on the severity of the injury. You're going to want to avoid rubbing the area because this can cause additional tissue damage. Um, you want, when you are rewarming them with your rewarming interventions, you want to try to avoid uh, rewarming and refreezing. So you want to do like a nice continuous rewarming process and then try to keep them warm. You don't want to, you want to prevent them from refreezing. The water bath is typically using an, uh, a water solution at around 40 degrees Celsius. And then you're going to go ahead and um, add an antimicrobial agent to that. Typically it's chlorhexidine or iodine. Your wound management is going to involve that very similar to the full thickness type of burns that we discussed earlier. So you may have some a degree of debridement. You may have a degree of dressing changes and things like that. And oftentimes your wound um, from frostbite takes a long time for it to demarcate. Um, so you may have some extension to your injury even after your initial phases of, of treating. And again, you want to provide adequate pain management to these patients during these dressing changes and any type of, and, and, and throughout their hospitalization and throughout their care. And this completes our thermal injuries.